Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Insight. And obviously from the accent, I'm Ali and joining me as she does every week is Charlie. How are you? Did you have a great birthday? I'm good and I did. I had a really great birthday and part of that great birthday was thanks to the very fun gift that you gave me along with some of our podcasting friends. And stay tuned at the end of the episode and we'll play Charlie's birthday message for everyone to hear. If you listen to other true crime podcasts, you'll definitely want to tune in because you'll probably hear some of your favorites. Definitely. And I'm on the serious countdown to CrimeCon. By the time this episode comes out, it'll almost be six weeks until I fly the 40 or so hours or whatever it takes for me to join you and our amazing pod friends and listeners in Indianapolis. I just want to pack now. I'm that excited. Yeah, and I'm going to have like a harrowing five-hour journey, including a layover. <laughs> so, you know, we'll... <laughs> so uh, not quite the same, but I'll be there in Indianapolis waiting for you when you get off the plane. Make sure you make it through customs okay. Just have me a coffee waiting. Yeah, <laughs> at 10 at night. Yeah. Sounds great. <laughs> This week's mystery is an older one, and it's one of my favourites, actually, because it takes place in Hollywood, and it has a bit of glamour, conspiracy, and controversy. I'm, of course, talking about the disappearance of model, dancer, and bit part actress Jean Spangler. So let's get right into the mystery. Jean Elizabeth Spangler was born on September 2nd, 1923, in Seattle, Washington, to parents Martin and Florence Spangler. She was the youngest of four kids, and when Jean was seven years old, the family moved to Los Angeles, which would have a big effect on Jean's future. Upon finishing high school, Jean worked firstly as a model at a local department store, and then she started dancing at Florentine Gardens and Earl Carroll's Theatre. She performed regularly as a showgirl there. But she had dreams of becoming a Hollywood starlet. Jean would eventually join the Screen Extras Guild so she could get some experience working as an extra in movies and on television. It was during one of these nights dancing, Jean would meet Dexter Benner. He was a plastics manufacturer and three years her senior. So that's a bit of background into Jean Spangler. This week we have two amazing sponsors that keep the lights on here at Insight. Hunter Killer and Canvas People. Let me take this second to tell you guys about the new subscription box service called Hunter Killer. You've probably heard about it. People are obsessed. They've been in BuzzFeed, Fast Company, and Bustle. You'll see them all over social media. Hunter Killer sends a package to your home each month full of creepy correspondence from their quote killer curator and Think of him like a Hannibal Lecter type character, and he's got a mystery for you to solve. Each month, you get new clues, letters, articles, objects, tools, all adding to this ongoing murder mystery. And it's up to you to solve it, but you can join the thousands of other members all working together in the online communities. Perfect thing for an armchair detective like you, like me, like Allie, to go ahead and put our sleuthing skills to the test. You can join by logging on to huntakiller.com and applying for membership. Huntakiller is growing so fast that they have to limit their membership to just 500 a week. Once you apply and you're approved for membership, you'll receive a private link to subscribe. Then the package arrives at your door and waiting for that package, that's going to be the hardest part. And maybe this really isn't for you, but I have a feeling you know at least one person who would love to receive this as a gift. I can't recommend this enough. And to show support to our show, Hunt a Killer has offered a 10% discount code for our listeners, which is tracked to this message. Just use the code INSIGHT to get 10% off. That's INSIGHT, I-N-S-I-G-H-T. Wow, we had canvaspeople.com as a sponsor last week, and people are already showing us the beautiful canvases that they had made. So I can say with confidence that this company is fast and people are loving it. So if you used our promo offer and got your free 11 by 14 photo to Canvas, let us know. Send it to us on social media. We would love to see it. And a shout out to Lainey from True Crime Fan Club. Congratulations on getting married. She got one of her wedding photos printed on Canvas and framed at canvaspeople.com. They have a very easy to use photo to Canvas service that lets you take your favorite photo memories, like Lainey's wedding picture, and turn it into this beautiful artwork 
you can enjoy it every day on your wall. So instead of taking these pictures and letting them sit on your cell phone or sit on a disc or sit on your computer, you can bring it to life and put it on your wall. Like Lainey, could be for a wedding. Maybe you've just had a baby. Maybe your pet is adorable or you had family photos done. Or maybe it's just a snapshot that you just really love. These high quality canvases are made here in the U.S. These 11 by 14 canvases are normally priced at $69.99. But for a limited time, you can get this for free. You just pay the shipping. This makes a great gift, but maybe you need to just treat yourself and get this canvas for your home. To get this great deal, just go to canvaspeople.com, click order canvas. You will get a free 11 by 14 photo to canvas with the promo code SITE, S-I-G-H-T. So that brings us to June 1942. 19-year-old Jean marries her beau, Dexter. Their marriage has its problems from the start. Dexter thought Jean would settle into becoming a wife and then eventually a mother, But she wasn't so keen on giving up that Hollywood dream. And they would have these physical and violent fights. Because of this, Jean filed for divorce only six months into the marriage. But then they would go through these periods of makeups and breakups. And this went on for about three years. It was during one of these, I guess it would be one of the makeup times, that Jean would fall pregnant and have their daughter Christine in April of 1944. You know, something that's kind of interesting about that little bit about their marriage is I listened to the You Must Remember This podcast, which is about Hollywood and Hollywood history. This is like the prefix for half of Hollywood starlets' lives. They get married, the husband wants them to settle down, they want to pursue their dream. And it causes a volatile situation. I've noticed that in the current series, which is one of my favorite series of any podcast, this seems to be a recurring theme. Not long after Christine was born, Dexter was sent to serve in the war. And while he was gone, Gene had a series of affairs. One would be with an Army Air Corps lieutenant who was known as Scotty. Their relationship was brief but intense. They moved in together. There was talk of a marriage despite Jean still being married to Dexter. But much like Dexter, Scotty was physically abusive towards her. Jean would show up to jobs sporting black eyes, bruises. When their relationship ended within a year, Scotty threatened to kill her. It's because of this affair in particular that Dexter and Jean did finally divorce in 1946, with Dexter being awarded temporary custody of Christine partly due to Jean's infidelity and her alleged party girl lifestyle. And Jean was determined to get Christine back. To raise the money for the costs of the custody battle, as well as to support herself and her parents, at this stage, Martin, Jean's father, he was in hospital and Jean was responsible for paying the hospital bills. So Jean worked more than ever, By 1948, the custody arrangements for Christine, who was four years old now, they were back in court. Dexter, who was remarried at this point, he claimed that Jean partied too much and she was too self-absorbed to have custody of Christine. Jean claimed that in the two years that he had custody, Dexter had denied her visitation with her daughter and he had threatened her life repeatedly. In the end, though, Jean was awarded custody of Christine, with Dexter to have her on the weekends. After this, Jean, Christine, and Jean's mother Florence, Martin was still in hospital, they moved into a two-bedroom apartment. By the summer of 1949, Jean was a staple of Hollywood nightlife, and it wasn't a normal weekend if Jean wasn't out on the arm of a handsome celebrity at the different nightclubs all over Los Angeles. The rumor was that she dated 50 men in the three months of the summer, with one of them being Ronald Reagan. Though 50 men in 90 days sounds pretty high to me, but, you know, let's go with the Hollywood rumors. We do know that she did date some men with known mafia connections. In particular, David Ogle, who was an associate of Los Angeles gangster Mickey Cohen. So remember both of those names because they will come up a few more times in this story. Jean started talking to friends around this time about a large sum of money she was coming into. It doesn't look like she gave out a lot of detail on where this money was coming from. 
But it was still reported that she may have been having an affair with a prominent married man who might not want that to go public. You would think that if it was a big movie role, she would say that's where the money was coming from. So it does sound like it was something a bit more nefarious. So this large sum of money, maybe it was hush money to keep the affair quiet. She may have been extorting or planning on extorting someone. A close friend of Jean's also reported that Jean had informed her that she was three months pregnant. And she said that she knew who the father was, but didn't give a name. That's been taken as gospel in almost all of the articles I've come across, but we haven't found anywhere where this claim has been officially verified. By verified, we mean that there haven't been medical reports released or even a doctor coming forward to confirm that she had seen him as a pregnant patient. The popularity of the story, though, will come up later in theories. So that brings us to October. Jean is 26 years old, and by this stage, she has been in eight different movies, and they all are uncredited parts. Florence went out of town to Kentucky to visit relatives. So Jean's sister-in-law, Sophie, and Sophie was the wife of her brother, Edward, and he died in World War II in 1945. Sophie came from St. Louis with her daughter to help out while Florence was gone so Jean could still work. Now, I have also read that Sophie and Edward lived with Jean, but I don't think that was the case considering Jean, Christine and Florence were living in a two-bedroom apartment. On Friday, October 7, 1949, sometime between 5 and 5.30 p.m., Jean told Sophie that she was going to see Dexter to talk to him about increasing the child support, and he was also a week behind in the payments. And then after that, she was going to work late at a movie. So with that, she kissed Christine goodbye, said she wouldn't be home too late, and left. The last confirmed sighting of Jean was 30 minutes later, when Jean was seen at the farmer's markets, which is a few blocks from her apartment. There was a sales clerk there that saw her just wandering around for about two hours. And the clerk reported that it looked like that she was browsing, but also looked like she was waiting for someone. However, I'm not sure how he knew that. I mean, I'm not sure if she was checking her watch a lot or watching towards the entrance. I'm not sure. But for the record, and we haven't had an entry in our world tour for a while, but a bit of trivia... This farmer's market still runs today. From a payphone at that farmer's market, Jean called home to check on Christine. And as much as she's painted in the media and in reports as a party girl, this was her norm when she went out. She always called and checked on her daughter. She seemed like a really good mother and really interested in Christine and her well-being. Even when the judge gave her her gave custody of Christine to her, He said in the ruling that her party girl ways were not impacting the child and they were far enough in her past and that Dexter withholding the child from seeing her mother was more detrimental. So, I mean, on the whole, when you're looking at this, she was a very attentive mother and she always called to check on Christine if she was out. And she wasn't leaving Christine home by herself. There was her mother there. When her mother went away, she made sure that there was another responsible adult there to look after her. Exactly. She talked to Sophie and confirmed that she wouldn't be coming home too late, like she had said before she left, and this would have been around 7 p.m. It's believed she then left the farmer's market at this time. It would have been fairly dark. The sunset on that day was at 5.29 p.m., if we want to be exact, so an hour and a half later, you can imagine it's going to be pretty dark. There were several other alleged sightings after this. Some people who knew Jean said they saw her eating hot dogs with a, quote, clean-cut young man in front of the markets. And this would have been at about 10 or 10.30 at night. They said she didn't seem upset or scared. Later, when being pushed during questioning, these same people changed their story. They said it was the night before, it wasn't the night in question. So this was kind of a shaky sighting. Another witness claimed to have seen Jean at about 1.30 in the early hours of the morning. 
She was at a restaurant called The Cheese Box and was sitting with a nicely dressed, tall, clean-cut man with dark hair who appeared to be in about his mid-30s. A local DJ, Al the Sheik Lazar, lays further claim to this. He says he saw Gene when he was doing one of his sets at The Cheese Box as well. But the Sheik claimed that he saw Gene arguing with two men that she appeared to be there with. His time did match the other witness about 1.30 in the morning, so this sighting has a little bit stronger foundation than the previous. And then the final sighting was somewhere between 2 and 3 a.m., so not that long after she was seen at the cheese box. A gas station attendant saw a woman he thought looked like Jean and an unknown man in a blue-gray convertible. This man told the attendant that they're going to Fresno, but the woman didn't say anything and she did not look happy. When the car drove off, this woman, who was maybe Jean, called out to the attendant for him to get the license plate number and call the police. And he did this, but the police couldn't find the car and then nothing else really came of it. And we're not sure that this was Jean. We do know that this incident happened because he called the police right away. We're just not sure it was Jean that was in the car. It's a difficult situation because we talked about this before, but while Jean was a beautiful woman, there was nothing really outstanding or unique about her looks. She would have been just another Hollywood wannabe starlet. Exactly. And this is, again, two, three in the morning. So it was dark, you know, it was late, and the man didn't know her. He just recognized her in hindsight after the news broke. When Jean didn't come home by morning, Sophie went to the LAPD and reported Jean missing. The police didn't take it seriously in the first instance. I mean, this is Hollywood, and here we have a young starlet wannabe. She hadn't been gone 24 hours by this stage. They told Sophie to just go home and wait it out because Jean most likely went to a party that carried on elsewhere or went off with a man for a weekend. So the day after that, Sunday, October 9, Jean's purse was found near the entrance to Griffith Park by the park ranger. The straps on one side had been torn off, which would suggest some kind of attack. So this is what changed the police's minds and got them into action. The purse itself was empty, except for a silver dollar, so it didn't look like this was a robbery of any kind. Sophie had told the police that when Jean left, she didn't have any money on her. It wasn't like she was this big movie star. She only had those bit parts and was working as a dancer, so she wasn't making a lot of money. The silver dollar was something she always carried around with her, and she called it her lucky charm. But the one thing that caught the interest of police was a note, which read, Kirk, can't wait any longer. Going to see Dr. Scott. It'll work best this way, while Mother is away. So at the end of the note, it ends with a comma, as if she was probably interrupted while she was writing it. However, when I look at the note, which is widely available online, and we will post it in our usual places, but to me, I don't know if I'm convinced. It could be a full stop to me. I agree. I don't don't buy that it's definitely a comma. If she's writing it in a rush as she was walking out the door that day she went missing, it might have just been... A slightly longer stroke. Exactly. But in saying that, Is that the way you would normally finish a note to someone without signing off with at least your initial? She may have gotten interrupted while she was writing it. Whether there was a whole lot more she planned on writing other than Jean or JS, I I don't know. But I do think a lot is made out of this note when it's probably not as much as it seems. I mean, it's possibly she could have been interrupted But does that mean it has to be some crazed killer? It could have been just Christine trying to get her mother's attention. With the purse being found, it was suspected that Jean had actually been abducted or worse. In the days that followed, hundreds of volunteers, police on horseback, search dogs, they started searching Griffith Park. This continued for three or four days, and this was no small feat either. 
Griffith Park covers about 4,000 acres, and it's not your normal sit down, have a picnic, throw a football kind of park. A lot of those 4,000 acres are rugged terrain and thick vegetation. This would be frustrating to the searchers, because as you can imagine, there was an urgency in this search. It was, what are we at, three plus days since Jean had last been seen, and any hope of finding her alive in the park, let's say she had been attacked and left for dead somewhere, just even if that was an option, it was really fading fast at this point. While investigating the note and trying to work out who these elusive Kurt and Dr. Scott could be, police discover that Jean once worked as an extra in the movie starring Kirk Douglas called Young Man with a Horn. And this was a pretty star-studded movie with Lauren Bacall and Doris Day. Jean even had a scene with Kirk. She can be seen for a moment on stage with Kirk dressed as a hula dancer. But according to Jean's mother, Florence, Jean had been out on a date, at least two dates, with a man named Kirk. She didn't know his last name, she hadn't even met him, and she knew nothing else about him other that his name was Kirk. And this was because when they went out on dates, he would wait in the car so her mother could never get a good look at him which I could understand if this was the actual Kirk Douglas, that he would want to keep things on the DL. And this is nothing like how Jean would normally act when she was dating someone, especially if it was someone who was prominent. She liked to pose for the cameras and have her name on the door with a good-looking man on her arm. That was who she was. She was all about the glamour, so to be hiding who she was dating those few times... Something had to be going on. So Florence was shown pictures and she said she was unsure whether or not the Kirk that Jean went out with was the Kirk Douglas. She was also adamant that Jean would never had gone out with a total stranger and it would have to have been someone that she had known fairly well. So police focused their investigation there and the only Kirk they could find with any connection at all to Jean was Kirk Douglas. On October 12, the LAPD received a phone call from Kirk Douglas and it seemingly was out of the blue. And he calls them to tell them that he definitely was not the Kirk in the note. That apparently he had heard from an acquaintance of his about Jean's disappearance. And that her name sounded familiar to his friend, so his friend looked it up and mentioned it to Kirk. He tells the police that he remembers talking to Jean on set for a bit, but other than that, he didn't have any personal contact with her. And he doesn't just call the police this one time. He calls back again just to make sure that they know that he is no way involved. And although they are confused to why he would be contacting them unprovoked like this, they accept his story. I personally think it's possible that his agent may have gotten wind to what was going on and they asked Kurt to contact the police to probably just nip it in the bud before the tabloid newspapers got wind of it first, and then they created some whole story about how he killed Jean or something like that. I have no doubt someone in the LAPD tipped off Kirk Douglas's people yeah. to say, hey, there's a Kirk, you're coming up in this conversation, because Kirk isn't an unheard of name. It's actually not Kirk Douglas's actual name. And it certainly wasn't super common. He made it more popular. So you'll actually see more Kirks who were born like in the 50s and 60s than in the 20s and the teens. So it wasn't a very common name, but it wasn't unheard of either. So you must think, though, how many Kirks did Jean know? We have at least two now in this story, possibly three, because we have Kirk Douglas, the Kirk that Jean was dating, and then possibly the Kirk in the note. How likely is that? The odds are at least two of those people are the same person. I do think it's possible she knew two Kirks. She may have not told her mom the truth about who she was going out with, you know, the actual name. If it was someone, maybe she was looking to extort or someone who was well-known and married who wanted to keep it on the down low. Why would she use his actual name? I, I don't. 
I don't know. Kirk is a kind of odd name to choose, but Kirk Douglas gets looked at, but I don't think there's really any proof it was him that she wrote that note to. There doesn't seem to be any other any other factor tying him to her disappearance. Just because he's mentioned on the note, that's not enough for me to say that he's at all involved. Right. I'd be surprised if they went out on multiple dates and nobody saw them together. I mean, he was she wouldn't have been very recognizable at the time, but everyone would have been paying attention to who Kirk Douglas was out on a date with. I think there's more far likely suspects. Yes, I agree. Now, as far as dating goes, as I said earlier, she was dating a lot of different men and there were new men in her life pretty regularly, whether she met them while she was out for the night or on a movie set. At the time of her disappearance, Jean had a small part in a Robert Cummings movie, Girl of the Year. Robert was interviewed by the police and he told them that Jean had told him she was having a new romance, but it was nothing serious and they were just enjoying themselves. This new romance was with writer Peter Brooks. Police did talk to him, and he said he knew nothing of the last few days before Jean went missing. He hadn't talked to her, hadn't really seen her. And the police cleared him of any involvement, though I haven't seen what made them clear him. Then an actor named Robert Stack came forward. This is the same Robert Stack, who is best known for starring in The Untouchables and later being the host of Unsolved Mysteries. I'm sure most of our listeners know him more from Unsolved Mysteries. But this is all before that. In 1949, Robert Stack was a working actor, and he'd been in a dozen movies or so. He was another celebrity who Gene knew, though it doesn't appear that they were ever dating, just that they ran in the same circles. Two nights before Jean went missing, Robert said he was walking past her apartment when he saw a man trying to break into one of her windows. The man wasn't successful in breaking in. He was probably spooked by seeing Robert, which, as someone who watches Unsolved Mysteries and is used to that picture of that image of him, like, in a dark alley with steam (laughs) behind him and a trench coat, I can see why seeing Robert stack late at night in the street is scary. It has to be how it went down. It has to. I literally cannot force myself to picture it in any other way. (laughs) So naturally the man ran off. Whether Robert Stack was wearing a trench coat or not, we don't know. But kind of strangely for a man whose future self is so wise to the unsolved crime, he did not report this attempted break-in to the police as he witnessed it. He only came forward after learning Jean was missing. Moving away from who she was possibly dating or whatnot, let's go back to what Jean said to her sister-in-law, Sophie, when she was leaving that night she disappeared. She said she was going to see Dexter about the child support, both what he owed and what she thought he should be paying, and then she was going to the studio to work on a movie. This was the next lead that police checked out. They looked at anything she might possibly be in, and they checked with all those studios all around town, And they learned that there were no movie shoots that night, let alone one that Jean was signed to. This, I'm going to work on a movie, seems to have just been a flat-out lie. Dexter, for his part, denied having seen Jean or having had plans to see Jean that night. According to him, he actually hadn't seen her in weeks. His wife, who had been married to for one month, Lynn Lasky, backed up his version of events, saying that he was with her all night. Um, That doesn't count as an alibi to me, but (laughs) that that is his alibi. And the police seem to accept that. So they've pretty much cleared Dexter. They have no idea who Kirk is. So the police dig in and start searching out who this Dr. Scott could be. Dr. Scott was ruled out right away because there was no legitimate Dr. Scott who had treated Jean or Dexter for that matter. However, if a doctor was doing something slightly illegal or had been involved in a murder, I don't know if this was something that a Dr. Scott would freely share with the police. Because honestly, if this Dr. Scott did exist, and it was due to Jean having an abortion, I would imagine that the name would be more likely an alias rather than his actual name. But none of Jean's relatives had any idea who Dr. Scott could be, so police tried a different angle. They canvassed the bars and nightclubs of the Sunset Strip, where Jean did frequent, 
The investigators did learn there was an ex-medical student who called himself Doc, and he allegedly was the son of a wealthy Eastern family, and he would go from club to club and offer to perform abortions for a small fee. During their investigation, they couldn't find him, and no one could really give a consistent description, so that lead went cold as well. In the weeks and months that followed, police received tips from the public, as often happens in these high-profile missing persons cases. There were sightings from all across the country, even down into Mexico. Three waitresses at a drive-in restaurant in Monterey, California, claimed they saw Jean having lunch with a dark, heavy-set man. Jean and this man were overheard saying that they were headed towards San Francisco. Another placed her at a bus depot in Stockton, looking exhausted and wearing a different outfit than what she was last seen in. Then she was seen in North Hollywood by a schoolgirl who knew Jean. She claimed that she saw Jean looking nervous and frightened in a big sedan with an older looking man. Of course, we always put a little bit more weight into sightings from people who knew the person because they would recognize them more readily. On the other hand, this was a high profile case where people were coming up with supposed sightings all over the place. So we don't know what to do with these, like any other case. The police did follow up on a lot of these leads. There was one particular sighting of note. U.S. Customs agents in El Paso, Texas, reported that they shadowed a woman who they believed could have been Jean. She was in the company of David Ogle and Frank Nicoli, who was another associate of Mickey Cohen. An employee at the hotel where these three people were staying also identified Jean as being the woman from her photograph. However, neither the men's names nor Jean's name appear anywhere in the hotel register. Which you would expect if they were trying to get away undetected. Jean and the men would know people would be looking for her. It would be a major rookie error if they signed in under their actual names. I can't see those men making that kind of mistake. Right. And even if they didn't kidnap her and the three of them were trying to get away from the law, from Mickey Cohen, whatever, they wouldn't use their names. They're smarter than that. And for her part, Florence dismissed every sighting. She refused to believe Jean would take off and leave her daughter and the rest of her family, which I would have to agree, she fought so hard to get custody of Christine back. And Florence would continue to believe that Jean was murdered right up until her death in 1991. The police quickly wrapped up their missing person investigation despite Florence's beliefs, and they closed this investigation in 10 days after Jean went missing. After finding no clues as to her whereabouts, they announced that they believed that Jean was alive and missing on her own volition, while she recovered from a quote-unquote from an illness that she wishes to keep secret, meaning that they thought she went away while she recovered from an abortion. Their assumption was that she would reappear by the end of the following week. One month after Jean's disappearance, Florence wrote a letter to President Truman and she begged him to request the FBI get involved in the case because she believed the case could have been solved if more experienced officers were involved. But because the police, I think more or less believed she run away, they weren't pushing the angle that she was abducted and taken across state lines, and there wasn't really any proof she was murdered. Because of that, there was no need for the FBI to become involved. So Florence's request, unfortunately, it was never filled. And I really feel it's ridiculous for the police to assume she just was gone for a week or a couple weeks while she recovered, when she didn't even go out for three hours without calling to check in on her daughter, that she would go away for a week without telling anyone and without checking in on her daughter. That's so outside of her her known behavior. Exactly. For Florence, if losing her daughter wasn't bad enough, by the end of 1949, custody of Christine was awarded temporarily to her father, Dexter, with the understanding that Florence would be allowed visitation. But when she came to see Christine, Dexter forbid her from talking about Jean, and eventually he pretty much did what he did to Jean when he had custody of Christine when she was tiny. He stopped allowing Florence to come over at all. Florence 
did take Dexter to court over the breach and violation, and this custody issue went on for four more years. Although Dexter had missed a total of 14 court appearances over the custody of Christine, he had no problem showing up when he was asking the courts to let his wife Lynn adopt her. He claimed that her real mother, Jean, had abandoned her, and she deserved a mother who was there for her. Thankfully, the judge saw through this and blocked the request because there was no proof that Jean had abandoned her daughter because there was no proof that she was even still alive. At this point, it's 1951, and the police had publicly stated that they believed Jean was killed, so she didn't voluntarily leave her child. And Dexter continued to deny Florence's request to see Christine. He was eventually sentenced to jail for contempt of court in 1953, and a warrant was issued for his arrest. Dexter and Lynn decided to leave with Christine. They moved to Florida and could not be located. And that's where they stayed. Another unfortunate ending to the story, Christine would have been in her 40s when Florence died, and she had never made any attempt to contact her maternal grandparents, or any of her mom's family as an adult. We also don't know what Dexter had told her her whole life about the family, but it, it really is sad they never did see Christine again. The Los Angeles Times ran stories about Jean on the anniversary of her disappearance for several years after. Florence and a Hollywood columnist named Luella Parsons they each offered a $1,000 reward for information leading to Jean being found. However, they never resulted in any leads, and here we are almost 70 years later, and that is the story of the disappearance of Jean Spangler. So are you ready to move on to theories? I am ready. We have a whole heap of them, and some are better than others. Firstly, we have the obvious, the ex-husband Dexter Benner, when Jean left her home for the last time on October 7, she told her sister-in-law she was going to see Dexter to discuss child support. And then there was the brutal custody hearing between the two of them before this. So did Dexter kill her to get permanent custody of Christine? Some suspicious things about Dexter. When it was made public that Jean went missing, Dexter arrived at the house to take Christine. And Jean's sister-in-law, Sophie, later reported that he had scratches all over his face. When police questioned about this, he claimed he dropped a crate of glasses at work, which caused the scratches. The police obviously didn't believe such a weak story, so shortly after they excavated his garage, but they couldn't find anything, so between that and his alibi, he was cleared. His alibi being his wife. But if all of that hasn't left you pointing the finger at Dexter, and believe me, there is more to come later, it then comes out that the very night that Jean goes missing, Dexter had gone out on his small boat. Now, according to what I've read, sailing conditions weren't great on this night. The sea in this area was quite rough. And conveniently, Dexter and Lynn left out the boating trip on both of their official police statements. So are we looking at a burial at sea type situation here? I mean, maybe Jean really did go there that night and was threatening Dexter about the child support. Maybe that is the large sum of money she was talking about coming into. Then things got heated and they fought and then he killed her. What's the best way to hide a body so there isn't any evidence? You go out into the middle of the sea and throw the body overboard. And then Lynn could just tell the police that they never saw her and they never left the house. And then they get Christine back. Really, all their problems would be over. It's really uncommon for bodies not to wash up, but that doesn't mean it's unheard of, especially if they're weighted down at all. And I guess... We'll get into some connections, but Dexter had connections with this mob through his new wife as well. Honestly, we're kind of leading with the theory that I lean towards. <laughs> now I'm going to sound like I don't believe any of the other theories because this one is a very solid theory. There is circumstantial evidence that this is what happened, that they met in that park and in the struggle, her purse got ripped up a bit and either he hit her somewhere in the park where she just hasn't been found yet or he took her out on the boat. I have to agree. 
I don't think it was a planned murder. I think it was somewhere between an accidental death and a and a murder, so manslaughter type situation. He had a history of domestic violence and abuse. He was angry at her. He was manipulative. He used their daughter against her. He was an angry man who was known to be violent. Well, he threatened to kill her before. I think dismissing him so quickly was a mistake on the police part. Although, again, this is her body still hasn't been found and no body cases are hard to win now with DNA and forensic evidence. I can't even imagine in 1949 they would have ever taken him to trial without the body. And I think that held up the investigation on the whole. I think they closed it quickly because they were waiting for a body to... Once the body was found, then they'd they'd pursue it, but they were just going to drop it in the meantime. It does sound that they were suspicious of Dexter with the scratches and the story, but as you said, they couldn't prove anything. Along those same lines of someone with a known violent past against Jean, we have Jean's former boyfriend, Lieutenant Scott, involved. They had a passionate and heated relationship that ended with him threatening to kill her. Was the Dr. Scott some coded way that she used to refer to Scotty? Did he eventually come through with his promise to kill her? I don't lean towards this, to be honest. He had plenty of opportunity, if that was his plan. Their relationship had ended several years before Jean went missing. And I certainly don't think we should not take threats like this seriously, because we do know that ending a relationship is a dangerous time for an abuse victim, This relationship was long over, and I can't find any proof that they had any contact afterwards, and if they did, it would have been very little. We could talk about the other person in that note, the Kirk. Going back a bit, we talked about how Jean's friend reported that she was coming into a quote-unquote great deal of money soon. Let's say for the sake of this theory that she was pregnant, could Jean have been blackmailing Kirk or whomever the father of the baby was? Someone whose career or marriage would likely be over if a secret affair and a love child came out in the public. Jean wasn't making a lot of money. She was only landing a few roles, and like Ali said earlier, they were all uncredited. And by Hollywood and showgirl standards, her age of 26 was already looking to limit her in where she could go in her career. So Kirk sounds like someone who would have a motive But to me, I don't understand why Kirk, if he killed her, would have left her purse with that note with his name on it in the park. I think if Kirk was involved, that note would never have been found. And I had the same problem we'll talk about in the next theory. The whole purse thing does bother me. With the evidence left inside, it seems almost that the crime would be more likely random or that maybe someone was trying to purposely throw suspicion on a Kirk, possibly Kirk Douglas, I think if uh, an abortionist or the Kirk involved in the letter was involved, they'd be taking an unnecessary risk when they could have just burnt or buried the purse or do whatever they did with the body instead of just dumping it with the evidence. As you said, Charlie, according to a friend, Jean had told them that she was three months pregnant at the time she disappeared. Now, abortions were illegal back then, and as we talked about in the Indiana Sand Dunes 3 episode, they were usually performed under questionable conditions and care. So, was Dr. Scott the abortionist, and had Jean, who was pregnant with Kirk's or whoever's child, did she bleed to death or died from some other complications from the surgery? That Jean was pregnant and had gone away to have an abortion was one of LAPD's early theories when they didn't find her after the first few weeks. To me, the reference about things working out better while her mother was out of town, it makes sense in this context as well. But on the other hand, as I said before, if Dr. Scott had performed a botched abortion on Jean, Why would he drop her purse with a note with his name in it for all to find? I think it's possible that this note was telling someone named Kirk that she was going to get an abortion and it still not be connected to her disappearance or her death. Now, we're going to rewind a bit again. And I said to remember a couple names. 
It was alleged that Jean's involvement with the men with the unsavory connections could have made her a target. It was alleged in the weeks leading up to her disappearance that she was spending time in Palm Springs with David Ogle, who had ties with the Los Angeles gangster Mickey Cohen. Mickey Cohen and his cronies had a long history of vacationing and partying in that area in those days. They ran an illegal gambling club there, among other less-than-legal activities. Just a quick background on Mickey Cohen so we know who we're dealing with. He was a member of the Jewish mafia, but he also had ties to the Italian mob families. He was known to basically control the media in the 40s and the 50s in Los Angeles. Old newspaper articles show that Cohen was what we would call a celebrity mobster. But even though Gene was connected to him and his cronies at the time of her disappearance, you won't find contemporary articles reporting this because of his control over them. He also used Hollywood secrets against celebrities to make money. This was one of his favorite money-making operations. One such scandal was a Lana Turner sex tape made with one of his handsome associates. And from what I understand, that wasn't the only time he had a good-looking young man seduce and then blackmail a rising starlet. The scandal blew up when the handsome associate, John Stompanato, was found murdered in Lana Turner's bed. But that is another episode for another day. If Jean was planning a big payday and she was associated with Mickey Cohen, perhaps there was one of these Hollywood secrets blackmail plots hatched between them, and either Mickey decided to get her out of the way, or the person they were blackmailing decided to get her out of the way. So continuing on with Mickey Cohen and going back to David Ogle, Another line of thinking, Cohen had been pressuring Ogle and Frank Nicoli, who was also an associate of Cohen, to leave the country. Because both Ogle and Nicoli were under indictment for conspiracy charges and their involvement with Cohen, it didn't look good for him. So this brings up the age-old theory. Did Jean leave the country with either Nicoli or Ogle or perhaps both? leaving behind the impression she was murdered. Ogle disappeared himself on October 10, so within days of Jean, and Nicoli had vanished a month earlier on September 2nd. The only trace police ever found of Nicoli was his car keys, and they turned up in a sewer in LA. Are all of these disappearances linked? I think that Jean was known to mix in these circles, and the fact that all three of them disappeared so close together it does seem a bit suspicious on the surface. Perhaps Jean saw something she wasn't supposed to see, or going back to that blackmail idea, could she have tried to blackmail the wrong person? Because I can't see her running off with Ogle or whoever and starting a new life, especially not without Christine, when she did fight so hard to get her, there is no way she would leave without her. And possibly connected to this, Jean was seen with the clean-cut, well-dressed men, or man, depending on the sighting, on that night she went missing. You could throw in the sightings in the weeks after that as well, though, I mean, if you really think about those, she was in the paper, suddenly people are seeing her everywhere. A lot of these people probably had good intentions. Maybe they were just looking to see their name in the newspaper or be part of this big story. I, I don't know. The sightings past that initial night were terribly credible, but regardless... She was seen with a man or men on that night. So who were they? Could they have been associates of Mickey Cohen? They've never been identified. And these could have been the last people to see Gene alive. And while we're on the mob theory, we're going to circle back to the first theory. As I said earlier, Dexter didn't know where Gene was. And that was backed up by his wife, Lynn. And I alluded to Lynn's own involvement with the mafia because this marriage to Dexter was her second marriage. She was previously married to a man named Eli Lasky, and he was not only a mobster, but he was an associate of Mickey Cohen. And due to Jean's alleged romantic involvement with Nicole and Ogle, and we know they also went missing, perhaps this is all connected. It's just interesting that the police were so willing to accept that Dexter and Lynn knew nothing, especially considering... Dexter and Jean's past, that Jean had told her sister she was going to see Dexter that night, that Dexter had scratches on his face. This case is difficult. I know we're going to 
talk about another theory, but if we're looking at people who were known to her, she had abusive exes, she had mob connections, and she had illicit affairs with men who were high profile and wouldn't want it to be known. It seems like we have a long list of suspects. We've talked about cases where it seems like the person had no enemies or no one who might want to see them dead. And in this case, we may have several people whose lives would be easier without Gene Spangler in it. And that's that's really unfortunate. It made it a whole lot harder for the police, especially with no body, to investigate this case. Especially when they had likely reason to pin it on someone, if they had the evidence there, I'm sure the DNA or the evidence would be there to tie Dexter or Cohen or Ogle or Nicole, any of those men or his associates to the crime. It would be interesting to see where this case would have gone had it happened now, where they would have checked her phone records, they would have checked her social media accounts, even without a body they could have pinged her cell phone to figure out where she was going and where Dexter was at those times. It's a very different world investigatively now than it was then. And Jean being very much into the publicity, she'd be all over Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. It would be pretty easy to track her. Whenever we talk about these historic cases, I can't help but think of how differently it would be handled today with with the way technology is and with where our forensic investigation is just I always transport it into today's world and think about how much easier it is now to solve a crime. I think even possibly with the police's attitude towards the crime I think it would have been a lot different in today's situation than back then when oh she's just a party girl she's gone off for the weekend or she's just had an illegal abortion she'll be back in a week. Well I'd hope that would be the case anyway. So as I said at the start, some theories are stronger than others and we're getting towards the more weaker ones now. So the final theory that does split up into a few parts is that maybe Jean was killed by a serial killer. Within a week of Jean's disappearance, the media reported that there were concerns that maybe Jean was the victim of the Black Dahlia murderer. And for that one person out there who doesn't know... On January 15, 1947, the severely mutilated body of 22-year-old Elizabeth Short was found on a vacant lot at Learmont Park in Los Angeles. As police never found her killer, they compared missing and murdered LA women's cases with hers for years to come. Jean was one of those that were brought up. This was especially so because in the months before Jean went missing, there were other mysterious attacks on young women in the LA area, which they also suspected was related to Elizabeth Short's murder. And there are some connections between Elizabeth and Jean. If you look at pictures of them both, they are eerily similar. They could be sisters. And they were both movie extras. However, the police never found a connection between the two. The police themselves eventually believed that maybe Jean was linked to the deaths of Janine French and Gladys Kern. In the case of 45-year-old Janine French, her nude body was found dumped in West Los Angeles two years prior to Jean's disappearance. Janine was an actress like Jean. They apparently went for the same acting roles and they knew each other. But the strange turn in this case was when Janine was found, She had a curse word and the initials PD written on her body in red lipstick. Hence, her murderer was given the name The Lipstick Killer. And there was some misreporting in the newspapers that these initials were actually BD, so Janine was also linked to the Black Dahlia. The media actually played a big role in the Black Dahlia, Janine French and Jean Spangler connection. The police never really thought that the three of them were related. However, an army corporal named Joseph Damas did come forward. He called himself the werewolf killer and he claimed to have killed upwards of 50 women, including Elizabeth Short and Janine French. And while he didn't name Jean Spangler as one of his victims, 
the newspapers claimed him responsible. In the end, though, he was cleared of all involvement, well, at least in Elizabeth Short's murder, because at the time she was murdered, he was at an army training base in New Jersey. On DeMuss's part, though, he continued to claim he killed Elizabeth as well as 50 other women each time he was arrested for a range of minor offences well into the 1950s. Another suspect in the Black Dahlia case that's come up a lot in contemporary reports is George Hodel, and I'll just recommend people look that up on their own. His son, who is a former police officer, is pretty convinced it was his father and that some of these other cases may also be linked. So I would definitely look that up if you're interested in finding out more about this specific suspect. I I just don't really believe that Jean was a victim of the Black Dahlia murderer. I understand that Elizabeth and her, as I said, they look exactly the same. But Elizabeth Short's body was easily found. I think if Jean was a victim, they would have found her as well. Another disappearance that was linked to Jean's, the disappearance of 48-year-old Mimi Boomhauer. Mimi was a once wealthy widow who disappeared from her mansion in Bel Air on August 18, 1949, so just a couple of months before Jean. Mimi's purse was also found. It was found five days later in a telephone booth with a note to the police stuck to it, basically saying it had been found at the beach, though the purse didn't appear to have been wet or have sand on it. And it seems kind of odd that someone would think they should turn it over to the police, but then just leave it in a telephone booth. So they can't really be sure that it was ever at the beach. Like Jean, Mimi's body was never found. I don't know that they were necessarily linked. They have very different life, very different lifestyle, very different age gap, with Mimi being in her mid to late 40s and Jean only being 26. And Mimi also went missing on the anniversary of her husband's death, so it's possible she went missing under her own power and possibly committed suicide. But again, this is from that same time period, same basic area, and also she's never been found. We can move right to the most boring theory, much less sensational than all these others. It's that Jean was walking home past Griffith Park, and was attacked. This is where we would expect her to be if she was walking home. Her family said she had little to no money with her, so she wouldn't have taken a streetcar or especially not a cab. Griffith Park is massive, thousands of acres, and lots of rugged areas. It is actually possible that her remains are still in that park somewhere. Possibly she was attacked and assaulted, and her purse was dumped in another area of the park, so they didn't search that area so thoroughly. But I think we're both leaning towards a particular outcome in this case. As I said, I personally believe the answer to Jean's disappearance lies somewhere between intentional murder and accidental death. I think her relationship with this mysterious Kirk and her plans to visit Dr. Scott, I don't think it makes sense to me because... As I said, why would the illegal abortionist throw away a purse with a potentially incriminating note inside with his name written on it? As I said before, you would think that the abortionist would have disposed with Jean's purse in the same manner he disposed of her body, not left it there for someone to possibly track back to him. I think the answer lies closer to home for Jean. I agree. So before we move on to housekeeping, we just want to say a big thank you to Nina from Already Gone for giving Jean a voice today. And on to housekeeping. Firstly, if you are listening on iTunes or your app allows you to, please rate, review and subscribe. Not only do you have the satisfaction of possibly making me cry reading the lovely things you guys write, but you also help bring more people to the podcast. Thank you to the following people for their five-star reviews. Nick Sophia, Linus and Lucy, Lovey Dovey 15, and Ben from They Walk Among Us. And then if you are able, we have a Patreon for an ongoing monthly donation and a PayPal for a one-off donation. 
All links are on our website, insightpod.com. We have rewards from as little as a dollar a month. Thank you for our lovely Patreons this week. And that goes to Erica from the Apex and the Abyss, Gillian from Cork Junkie Podcast, Amy B and Rebecca E. If you'd like to chat to us, we are on Facebook. There is a page and also a private discussion group. We are on Twitter at InsightfulPod, Instagram at InsightPod, and the emails InsightfulPod at gmail.com. And we'll leave you all for today. As I said, we will now play Charlie's wonderful birthday message from some great other podcast that you need to add to your podcast rotation. Hey, Charlie, it's Ali here. I just want to wish my most beautiful and wonderful co-host a very happy birthday. On behalf of the team here at Insight, being just me and my crazy family and our friends. Wait, maybe I'll just let them tell you for themselves. Happy birthday. April 18th, 2017. Kansas City, Missouri. Insight podcast host Charlie wakes up to discover a bunch of mysterious cryptic messages. The source of these messages appears to be her fellow podcasters, and Charlie's co-host Allie is suspected of being the mastermind behind the whole thing. However, the case takes a surprising turn when the mysterious messages are traced back to Circleville, Ohio, and are accompanied by the ominous words, If you do not spend the day celebrating, El Sickos will pay. So I guess you could say... Happy birthday, Charlie! This is Robin Warder from the Trail Went Cold podcast wishing you a wonderful birthday and another successful year for the Insight podcast. I'm Nate Hale, currently reporting from inside a large cake just waiting for the signal to jump out. And this is your birthday, Charlie. Happy birthday, Charlie. This is Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club. I just wanted to reach out and give you some very special birthday wishes. I love the work you and Allie are doing on the podcast, and I hope that you keep it up. Um, But most importantly, I hope that you're able to celebrate this day with your friends and family and are treated like a queen. So happy birthday once again. Have a great day. This is Brooke from Actual Innocence and Convicted. And I just wanted to say, happy birthday, Charlie. You are an amazing woman with so many skills and talents and a big, beautiful, wonderful heart. And I hope you have the best day ever. Hey, it's Colleen. And Eileen from Misconduct. We just want to say happy birthday, Charlie. We hope you have a really great day. Hey, Charlie, it's me, Erica, from the Apex and the Abyss. And with me here, I have little Mara. That's not really her name, but for this recording, we're just going to pretend for a second. Anyway, we both wanted to wish you the happiest birthday. I hope it's filled with fun, laughter, some true crime, but not anything that you're involved with. And just enjoy it because you deserve it more than anybody. All right? Hope you have a great day. Bye. You want to say bye? So I've been told that it's somebody's birthday. I've kept Judge and Jeremy locked in the cellar, but I decided to let them out just long enough to wish you happy birthday. Hey, Charlie, this is Jeff. And this is Jeremy, and we just wanted to wish you a happy birthday. And many, many more. All right, back to the cellar. (laughs) Hey, Charlie, it's Marissa from The Vanished. I just wanted to wish you a happy birthday. I also wanted to thank you for being so supportive of my show for, what, over a year now? I'm looking forward to meeting you guys at CrimeCon, and we're going to have our own little pregnant lady posse over there. But anyway, I hope you have a fantastic birthday, and have a piece of cake for me. Hey, Charlie, what up? Happy birthday. Oh, no, the censors got me. This is Dina, as if you couldn't tell, from Twisted Philly, and I hope you have a fantastic birthday. I can't wait to see you at CrimeCon. 
Hugs and kisses, girl. Hey, Charlie. It's Nina from Already Gone. Happy birthday, lady. Have a good one. Hi, this is Tim Scott with the History Reeves podcast, and I am joined by... The Colonel. And uh, we are here to say happy birthday to a very, very special friend of ours. The very lovely and talented Charlie. From the Insight Podcast. A wonderful show, obviously uh, researched by very, very smart people. Smarter than us. Far smarter than us and prettier than us. Yes, that well, that doesn't take a lot. So happy birthday, Charlie. We hope you have a great day, and we're looking forward to seeing you at CrimeCon. And uh, tell your partner to wait to kill me before I get to meet you. You mean wait to kill, wait before she kills you? Wait to kill me. Till after you meet her. So after I meet Charlie, her, I got a blood feud back on with Allie. Yes. But, but this is Charlie's birthday, so when you blow out your candles, um, and I, well, there's a lot of them, I'm sure, on that cake by now. But uh, <laughs> Happy birthday, Charlie. <laughs> Happy, we'll, we'll see you soon. Have a fire extinguisher handy, Charlie. <laughs> Bye, Charlie. Hey, Charlie, this is Brandy Herman from the History Dweebs Podcast. Just wanted to wish you a very, very happy birthday. It's been an honor and a privilege to get to know you over the past year or so, and I cannot wait to see you at CrimeCon. So lots of love and have a great day. Mwah! Hey, Charlie. This is Esther from Once Upon a Crime. Wishing you the very happiest of birthdays. You rock, girl. Have a great one. Hi, Charlie. We hope you have an absolutely amazing birthday. Love from Benjamin and Rosie. Uh, they walk among us. Hi, Charlie. This is Jillian from Court Junkie. I just wanted to say happy birthday. I hope you have a fantastic day. And hopefully Graham has a really cute superhero outfit picked out just for you on your day. Um, I'm so glad that we met in our Women True Crime Podcasters group, and hopefully we get to hang out in real life someday soon. Happy birthday. You know, when people sing, it's like they can sing many different things, but if they start singing happy birthday, they just go out of tune. And and it's so embarrassing. Yes. (laughs) It's horrible. I don't know what the deal is. All right. Well, let's just wish Charlie a happy birthday real quick. Am I too loud? No, you're fine. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) All right. All right. This is Justin. And this is Aaron. From the Generation Y. (laughs) Happy birthday, Charlie. (laughs) Happy birthday, Charlie. (laughs) We would sing you happy birthday, but we don't want to commit any crimes. No. That would would be a a, a butchering of a song. Welcome to Charlie's birthday. To paraphrase modern day poet Curtis Jackson. Go, Charlie, it's your birthday. We're gonna party like it's your birthday. We're gonna sip Bacardi like it's your birthday. Happy birthday, it's your birthday. <laughs> <laughs>